Hello, this is Speculative Fiction Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we are here today to go back to talking about fiction, to go back to talking about short fiction. And we wanted to start out with this season three episode talking about the multiple award-winning Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience TM by Rebecca Rowanhorse. You know, I didn't actually see the TM. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> to give it the most basic possible summary, this is the the least fleshed out summary summary that you can possibly give it. The story's told in a second person tense, and the the you of the story is a gentleman named Jesse Trueblatt, who lives in Sedona, Arizona, and we can talk later about why that is the absolute perfect setting for this story. Uh, and what he does is he, his business, his, his job is to go into a virtual reality pod and help guide tourists with a capital T, the customer, through a quote unquote authentic, usually vision quest. There's a bunch of different things that he can do, um, but most tourists want a vision quest and, and through this VR, and he uh, he is absolutely set bound and determined to give them one. And he makes a living at it. Uh, that's much better than being unemployed, which he's been in the past. His wife isn't thrilled with it, but you know, hey, they've got a house. This is good. Uh, so for for his Indian persona, when he goes into VR, you know, he's watched all the movies, and he's he knows how to make an Indian look authentic to a tourist. And, you know, so for him, it's when he's in VR, it's not Jesse Trueblood, it's Jesse Trueblood. You know, that sounds much, much better. So he's in a bit of a bind at work. He pitched an idea that ended up not flying. The management's not happy with him. His Some of his coworkers are a little like, uh, come on, are you really on our side? And so he knows he needs to, you know, do the best he can over the next few weeks. And he... He starts in a VR session and the customer comes in, the tourist comes in and, you know, he does the, the how, you know, welcome my son, you know, to find wisdom. And the, this white guy, very pale looking, um, you know, younger 20 something uh, white guy comes in is like, ah, this isn't, this isn't what I was looking for. This doesn't seem authentic to me. And the guy's like, whoa, whoa, wait, come back, come back. <laughs> You know, he's so desperate, the, the um, you know, Jesse is. Uh, so they, they end up kind of reaching a compromise. But when, when Jesse goes to the bar um, after work that night, you know, he, he talks to some of his coworkers. And, and obviously the, you know, the concept of authenticity comes in for a huge amount of interrogation over the entire story. But when he leaves the bar that night, that same tourist, looking the same as he does in real life, approaches him in in quote-unquote real life and like hey um you know i want to talk to you just one-on-one i know that didn't go well and the guy's like whoa this is you're not i'm never supposed to meet you outside of the vr experience but they agree to meet you know uh in a couple nights so they do they meet back at this bar that that sort of caters to to the um the indian community in sedona and the guy really asks about Jesse's life and really seems interested in all the things that Jesse has to say. And so they end up meeting regularly, like a two or three times a week and just having drinks and, and Jesse's talking and he feels 
Jesse feels so validated by having somebody who really seems to care about his life and his stories and his perspective. Well, that works great until one week he gets sick and he can't, you know, he just can't go into work. And so he calls in sick, has to call in sick again. And he's worried because he's also standing up this new friend that he's met. Um, you know, he doesn't have the guy's number. He can't say, oh, hey, I'm sick. So he sends his wife uh, down to the bar to, to just make his excuses. And when she comes back, she's like, oh, hey, you didn't tell me that guy was, you know, part Cherokee. And he's like, well, OK, like 164th. <laughs> That's what he said, but yeah, okay, whatever. Well, when he finally gets a little bit better, he goes back to work after about a week. And at work, they say, hey, um, you know, we uh, we met this guy. His he, uh, his last name's Wolf, and he's uh, he's part Cherokee, and he just seems way more authentic. And uh, we gave him your job. You're fired. <laughs> and Jesse goes on a complete bender, and he figures out that it's the guy he's been talking to. It's just completely replaced him. And he, you know, winds up literally drunk in a gutter, uh, having had this this white guy uh, disavow him uh, completely. Um, and when he goes home, his wife's gone. His wife's gone off to visit to stay with some family, and the guy has moved into his house, and basically says, "Look, you know, Ter your wife Teresa, I, I promised her you'd be out of here." Uh, you know, she she doesn't want somebody like you, somebody who's going to get left in the gutter. And the guy's like, look, you can't just take my whole life. And and then the guy says, what if this is my experience and you're the tourist? And then the, the ending is very clear that the feeling of Jesse getting kicked out of VR is exactly the same as the feeling that he gets when a tourist leaves his his VR at work. And so you know there are these multiple layers of of deceit uh, not deceit but um uh, of artifice and and okay so that's that's the very bare bones summary <laughs> of a very nuanced story where okay so the idea is vr is real um you can buy a a vision quest from a quote unquote real indian and this guy really is a pueblo indian um mm -hmm. but what if what if the perspective you character in the story is also just a tourist? Oh, okay. So yes. one, like all the awards. So yes. Karen, and you, I, I just want to say that if you heard me giggling at points during your summary, um, I do come from a culture where sometimes we laugh at pain as well as humor. So um, I think that some of my reactions were maybe more on the pain side. I just want to point that out. <laughs> um, so more more of a right chuckle than an actual, oh, isn't this so lovely? I just wanted to, to mention that. But yes, this won all the awards. And, um, and I like to see stories like this win all the awards. Because as you say, it's got, it's got some layers to it. It's got some nuance to it. But most of all, it is a story that speaks to me and my Caribbean tourist experience so perfectly that um, it's one of those few occasions where you can kind of read something and think, well, you know, this, this could have been written for me. Um, and, and, I, and I also have to mention that I'm not a fan of the, the second person approach, but usually, right? Usually, but this was done so seamlessly that by the time the first paragraph is over, you've forgotten that you're in second person. Mm -hmm. The story itself becomes the VR experience. 
So that's well, and, one and layer there. I, I was thinking to myself as I was I was thinking reading the story a second time to make sure that, that I kinda had it down for this podcast. You, second person point of view was almost a, a literary device in search of a, an application where it's actually useful until <laughs> yes. the science fiction VR experience. Because now um, with all the first person shooter games mm -hmm. where you're playing a character and the character is quote unquote you. Exactly. We call them first-person shooters, but in fiction, that mm -hmm. translates perfectly to you do this and you do that and you're in the story. And that's the yes. experience of being a first-person gamer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it <laughs> and, and another example I would a, put in. a science fiction trope and a, and a uh, uh, literary trope mesh so well together. But I would I would add to that that even before we we really got into the gaming, don't forget the the choose your own adventure things. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> although of course here it's like you have no choice; you're kind of just along for the ride, which has its, its own pleasures um, or or again pain. But um, but yeah yeah you <laughs> you're definitely it it definitely fits it clicks, and and it and I like I said when you have that that effortless feeling where the story is just pulling you along. Um, you know, that's, that's always a bit of magic for me. So that's the first thing I want to say about that in terms of, of the structure. So, so that's, that's one thing. That's, that's like the whole, the whole, um, structure or context or whatever and how well that works. And then let me talk about how it, it speaks to me on an individual level. This whole question of not just, um, having your identity, um, questioned, having your identity, um, shall we say determined by outsiders, but also having your identity commodified is so the West Indian tourist experience. One could argue it's any tourist experience, but I am going to argue that there are, there are certainly some tourist venues where the exercise is a little more painful than others. I mean, we have your own sort of Mediterranean tourist stereotypes. You have your, say, Australian tourist stereotypes. But the ways in which they can be harmful just do not seem to me to be as widespread and as impactful as what I read in this story and also what I experience here in this country. Um, so, you know, you know, looking at things like, um, you know, not really caring exactly um, which nation he's, he's from, you know, but saying, okay, this is the one that's more known and more authentic. So you do this, you know, even if you're really that. And, and, you know, you need a name that's, that's recognizably Indian. So, you know, the turn black can't work. It's going to be true blood. You know, well, sorry, he did that one for himself. But, you know, you, you buy into mm -hmm. it because you're like, this is a job. They've commodified my identity. I need to eat. So I'm going to fall in line. And he does a lot of falling in line. There's a very neat little bit in the middle where um, one of his coworkers is um, being is trying to challenge the boss because there's a, a very sort of sexist and, frankly, almost dangerous um, sort of um, squaw fantasy is called squaw um, fantasy experience. Yeah, yeah, which which 
that's it. just saying it actually gives me like a really creepy <laughs> feeling and um and and is looking to him for support and he's you know keeping his head down keeping his mouth shut and then afterwards when he's like sort of pressed on it in a in a non-boss context he's very honest he says i think i really need this job you know because his co-worker's like no what did you really think you said nothing what did you really think <laughs> no i think i really need this job and i was like man i feel you you know there are really some times when you would love to be the person who speaks out who where you would love to be the person who like stands up for what is right but sometimes you are precisely at that basic level of survival that you're like you know this is about the house the shelter over my head or not the food on my table or not my my spouse leaving me or not this isn't this isn't um academic this isn't you know just a game this is these are some real stakes for some seemingly trivial reactions so so yeah you you get you get that thing where you know you realize that you're making all these um compromises in your very existence about your very self but it's so tied because i've commodified it it's so tied to can i even just eat that you know you don't you don't have the space to be brave you don't have the space to be risky and i wish people would understand that um i'm going to share something now which is um whew, i guess i guess in a way i remember this because of i said how the squat experience thing kind of made me feel so you know part of um these type of tourist experiences is the whole concept of you know the sex fantasy and again you know was it sea sand and sex is supposed to be the tagline for the west indies um so i was recently um well, not really recently but well who well back chatting with some friends of mine and you know yes of course they're going to be you know your various um men cruising the beaches looking for you know some some tourist woman to look as if she wants to have a fling or whatever and get some pay for that don't don't think it's just the women um and <laughs> and I, and my friend was telling me that there is a particular type of tourist who is not content to um have that kind of fantasy with someone who is as i would say clearly a sex worker clearing the business you know maybe they're freelancing maybe it's just for a season maybe it's something they do regularly but it's something that they have in a sense decided to do no their fantasy is to find an ordinary hotel worker who might be in a bind and say hey you know if you do this extra thing i'm going to pay you this this uh, this amount of money so the the cachet there is to find someone who has not signed up for this kind of work who has not contemplated this kind of work but is in such dire straits financially um whether it be for um health reasons someone in the family you know some sudden debt that they're going to break down and do it and that is something that they would do or even entrap someone into doing and i remember thinking of that as as a very special kind of evil where it's it's not enough for you to have this kind of um fantasy but you also have to have an actual domination to go along with it an actual um oppression to go along with it so when this this villain and i do call him a villain comes on the scene um with his you know sort of fraction of of maybe cherokee and really starts um you know talking to jesse and making him feel supported and validated and 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 i'm pouring out his authenticity the way he then steals that 
to me is like that kind of cheat, is like that kind of additional level of evil where, you know, he turns down what Jesse is willing to offer, what he, what he signed up for within the VR um, uh, kind of occupation. You know, he came with this particular image and this particular name and he said, this is what I'm going to offer you. And he was like, eh, no, that's not authentic enough. So what does he do? He turns around, he talks to Jesse, and, and that's like him still just like sucking up the same experience. But it's not, it's not, it's not on, um, it's not on the right on terms. Jesse's terms. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's well, not it's on, on, terms, on terms that Jesse signed up for. Exactly. And he doesn't even realize that. He doesn't even realize right. that. It's all going to hit him at the end. So, so he has gone for the extra. No, it's not enough for me to just go into the virtual reality and have the experience. I need to go and steal this for real. I need to go and take away someone's identity and dignity for real. That is what is going to be the authentic experience for me. That is going to be my level of authenticity. That's where you learn a lot more about um, what identity the villain has. Um, and I think that's another core, another layer within the story. I've talked a lot. Let me hush for a bit, <laughs> get some feedback from you on that. Well, yeah, absolutely. No, so, so yeah, the, um, the white guy, and, and he accepts the name White Wolf, for, or at mm -hmm. least that's the name that, that Jesse gives him, and, and he never gets another. Um, definitely the villain of the piece. I mean, and one thing I didn't uh, mention in, this, in my summary, but there's a really nice framing quote right up at the top uh and it's by sherman alexi mm, who obviously yes. there's some problematic stuff with sherman alexi right now but mm -hmm. i think this statement can stand on its own this quote from him can stand on his own um and it says this is before you start anything about the novel or sorry anything about the story in the great american indian novel when it is finally written all of the white people will be indians and all of the indians will be ghosts yeah yeah that's your framing quote and mm -hmm. and that that exactly supports what you're what you're saying about you know how you know the the white guy white wolf is not just not just oh hey i'm going to go through this vision quest but i'm going to go track down the guy who is willing to give me a vision quest and instead steal his entire identity and life and everything yep right yeah everything about <laughs> What makes him him, and I'm going to just take it. Mm -hmm. Because I can. Yeah. Because I can. Right. Just, just because I can. We never get any of White Wolf's actual motivations. And, mm -hmm. and actually, you know, I almost want to refer to him as Pale Crow, because that's what Jesse named him <laughs> first. <laughs> and and that, that is a very, very good um, kind of omen, because, you know... Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you should you should pay attention to that. Pale Crow is, is precisely what you need yeah. to call him. Yeah. Yeah, so... Right, um, because crows obviously have a very different symbolism than wolves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, hmm. but then there's an... You know, so, so there's the bit... So after Jesse loses his job, everything gets a lot more surreal. Um... So he goes back to the bar, and I, I like the bit where he's he's going back in the afternoon instead of the evening, and all of a sudden it's a very different crowd of people at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, it's an afternoon crowd, heavy boozers and people without jobs. You laugh mm -hmm. because you fit right in. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, 
soon the next thing he knows, um, you know, White Wolf or Pale Crow comes into the bar once it's the evening guys getting off work and he comes in with the woman, the coworker who'd been concerned about the squaw fantasy. Mm-hmm. He, he comes in with that person and, uh, and Jesse starts being like, Hey guys, how look at this powerful thing. And they're both like, do we know you? <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is you know, just horrible that Dar, that, that Daran, the, the, person that he'd at least kind of tried to back up at least he understood her point of view when she was voicing her concerns she's like who are you and uh and and white wolf is like yeah hey dude you know you better keep moving (laughs) and jesse's like i just poured out my soul to you over the course of a couple months what the what the hell Mm -hmm. and then and then once he goes back home, all of a sudden we've had a description of how Jesse alters himself in VR to look more, quote unquote, authentically Indian. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, rock hard abs, lose the jeans, <laughs> get some buckskin, you know, mm-hmm. strengthen that jawline a little bit, you know, so lengthen the hair so that he can, you know, do that best Indian chief persona. Mm-hmm. As especially once he runs into white wolf slash pale crow at his own home mm-hmm. uh he's like did that guy ever look that tan did that guy ever look that <laughs> were his cheekbones that high before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's when you really start to get this idea of oh we're we're the tourists in mm-hmm. jesse in in this vr we the reader are now seeing a quote-unquote authentic Indian experience where now what we thought was reality is... So we knew that Jesse had a reality and that he was working in a VR. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing that maybe Jesse's reality is a VR compared mm-hmm. to our reality. And that's a bit of a... Just a really cool mindfuck at the end, isn't it? <laughs> Now, this vaguely reminds me of a film whose title is, hang on, hang on, is it The 13th Floor or something like that? But, um, but it was one of these situations where, um, it was, it was definitely inception level sort of thing going on, where the whole bulk mm-hmm. of the movie, spoilers everyone, the person in the movie was researching this sort of virtual reality thing was happening, and then at a certain point was challenged to go to, um, the horizon of his own world and then realize that he himself was in a virtual world. Um, so, so that, that, that kind of, of double layer thing was indeed fascinating. But the thing is, it, it, to me, it just struck a note of sorrow, a, a note of sorrow and of vanishing because
if he's a tourist, who would ever want to have a VR experience like that? You know what I'm saying? Well, so I'd mentioned as an offhand in my in my summary that the notion of authenticity comes mm -hmm. in for a huge interrogation in in this 5800 word story. Mm -hmm. Um because well especially, you know, I live now near Detroit. Um industrial ruin porn and poverty porn are basically real things, right? Yeah. I, yeah. You you might have seen some of that in your area of the woods as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um yeah. So Sorry, I, got, I got a little story about that later on. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. Um, and and actually, so I, I'd also just offhand mentioned, you know, let's let's talk about why Sedona is the perfect <laughs> the perfect setting for this. So I got mm -hmm. my uh, bachelor's degree from Northern Arizona University, which is about eh, fifty miles up the road, fifty miles north of Sedona. Mm -hmm. And uh, every once in a while, I'd take my <laughs> my very big, very old truck and take an <laughs> off-road down from, you know, off one of the main highways and take this like super rock climbing off off-road down to Sedona. But Sedona has this incredible reputation for being this new age uh, tourist trap um, where literally white people with more money than sense will come <laughs> and try and quote unquote, find themselves. And it's a beautiful place to do that. Sedona is stunningly beautiful. Like you cannot turn around at any place in that city limits and not see a beautiful view. It's red rock and it's pine tree, green pine trees. And it's, it's layers of rock strata. And, and so, you know, if you're going to, you know, throw away a bunch of money, it's a great place to do it. It's got hot springs. <laughs> it's got... You know, it's got everything, but it has grown up this industry to cater to people who want the quote unquote new age experience. Yeah. And obviously new age is a, a label for a whole suite of things, but the, you know, especially back in the eighties and nineties, and you know, the people who thought they could heal their souls with crystals or, mm -hmm. you know, different flavors of meditation or detoxes or whatever spirit quest you wanted to have, be it native American or new age or European druidic or whatever you, somebody would sell it to you in Sedona mm. or, or, you know, just a bunch of drugs. You could get that. Too. <laughs> Shortcuts. <laughs> you know, whatever you want. Sweat lodge. We can do sweat lodge. Ecstasy. We can do ecstasy. Whatever makes you feel like you're making progress. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, so that, that setting makes, makes a ton of sense. But what I really appreciated was the idea that Jesse is allowing his um, sense of authenticity to be completely defined by the clientele. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. He's judging what's authentic by what are my clients willing to pay for. And, mm -hmm. and he has completely internalized that. Mm -hmm. He tells mm -hmm. his wife, he's like, come on. She's like, True Blatt's your name. It's an Indian name because it's your name and you're Indian. <laughs> and he's like, we're not the right kind of Indian. We're Catholic, for Christ's sake. Yes. <laughs> I love that one, yeah. That wasn't great. I mean, that's in the mm -hmm. beginning when things are a little funnier than than the very mm -hmm. serious tone at the end. Um, but, you know, it's a great... It's it's absolutely true. He's he's internalized what authentic means, and what authentic mm -hmm. means gets defined by the people with the money. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. That, which hooks right back into what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> but but you said something a little earlier that I'm now I'm starting to become persuaded as I'm thinking it over. So you're saying, you know, Detroit, you know, um, industrial ruin porn, poverty porn. So I'm looking at this final um, set of paragraphs and saying, who would want this experience? And you're telling me, no, this is a thing. And then I'm realizing, okay, you know, I'm the girl who doesn't like to read Grimdark. <laughs> Because, you know, as I sit here kind of tracking the path of, of um, soon-to-be Hurricane Isaac, um, you know, my life is sufficiently vulnerable without having to indulge in, like, more grim things. So there are people whose lives are sufficiently secure that they do want to find themselves in this, like, you know, horrible experience of, of being a, a minority or, or someone who's undervalued, you know, forced into this job they can't escape and you know, having their, yes, their identity and their sense of self stolen. So yes, maybe for them, this would be the choose, choose your adventure that they would want, this sort of slow fall of degradation. Um, and, and maybe there's a sort of a weird kind of virtue they could feel in going through it, especially if they're white, you know, sort of like, well, I, I'm going to try to see what this feels like by going into this VR and doing it. Um, and, and that suddenly sounds like a very compelling <laughs> ending. Oh my well, gosh. That's, that's kind of scary, actually. Ooh, ooh yuck. <laughs> yeah, so here's my, here's, here's my thing. So when, when I first read this, so again, I, I went to college in Northern Arizona University, which is the, the only four year university that's close to the Diné reservation, which most people know is Navajo reservation. Mm. So there are plenty of, you know, Diné students there, especially I took a bunch of sociology classes, some from Diné professors. Um, so I, did I get, you know, a really great sense? Well, let me tell you, NAU is the only college in the country that offers a four-year language program in Diné. Nice. Which, to this day, I regret not taking. I, I tell myself I suck at languages, but mm -hmm. I really should have at least tried. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would have been but, cool. Okay, so, but I, you know, I've lived in that situation and, um, you know, so we learned there was more, at least more people to interact with going down to Sedona, driving through the res, you know, I, I, talking to some of the people in my classes. Um, yeah, I had opportunities to see this kind of area. And so I'm reading this story, you know, I start at the beginning just like everybody else. And it, just like you said, I lose the fact that it's second person immediately. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. fades in the background just brilliantly. And so I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, yeah, I see it. I see what's authentic here and what's not. And and mm. I see how, how you know, Jesse's quote unquote real life is, is more real than the VR thing. And I can laugh at how he's mediating the VR experience for all these tourists. Ha ha ha. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, then you get to the end and it's like, mm -hmm. wait. You're the tourist in Jesse's life. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, crap. Am I that tourist, right? Am I, <laughs> am I taking what limited understanding I have and mm. evaluating the story on that level? Hell yes, absolutely I am. So now this opens up for me an entirely new and brilliant layer to this, which is not just the commodification of identity, but the commodification of our pain. Because right. that's what this yeah. is. <laughs> This is also a commentary on that. And and now I can tell you the, the story that I, I promised you a little earlier when you were saying that you're sure that I've seen a bit of the whole um, poverty porn thing in my region. So um, I, I, I used to follow the BBC's news website um, and they did a couple of things I was irritated at, mostly in terms of like 
typos and stuff because I'm I'm bad that way. But the bit <laughs> the, the bit that kind of broke the camel's back was um a a little kind of photo journalist essay that it's completely disappeared. It got scrubbed. You'll never see it again. I think it lasted 24 hours because clearly somebody like called him up and said, you are on drugs. But what it was, was someone who was sent to Barbados to photograph the chattel house. Um, I think I would have explained to you uh, about the chattel house, but I probably haven't explained to whoever's listening right now on the podcast. So the chattel house is an indigenous architecture of Barbados. It's basically, um, it's, it's a house that can be taken apart and loaded onto uh, a truck and taken somewhere else and set back up again. That's that's the um, the basic idea behind it. But of course, over time, it's just like developed its own thing. There are plenty that can't be taken apart anymore. They're on you know permanent foundations, but they have a distinctive look to them. They have a distinctive um, set of sections that join together. They have particular fretwork in some cases, and um, and they are a thing. They are a thing because in our history, the reason they developed was that after emancipation, the planters still owned the land and they would rent the land to their former slaves who were now their tenants. And if they felt like kicking you off the land, you had to be able to pack up your house and go somewhere else. <clears throat> so that was how that became, um, you know, this indigenous architecture of ours. But there are some amazing examples of the chattel house. There are some, um, some that have survived for a very long time. There are some that are very new, but they're just done in a very pretty way. And yes, they're a bit of a touristy thing. So you can go to like these almost like tourist shop villages, which are kind of like um, linked chattel house malls. <laughs> um, because it's, 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 a, it's a visual thing that is Barbados. So off goes this photojournalist guy, and he's going to do a little something on the chattel house in Barbados. And it seemed as if he stopped at every rundown, unpainted, weathered, shambolic vision, version of it that he could find and put those all together into an essay. I was like, wow, wow. He, like, and I knew where some of these were. So I was like, he literally had to, like, pass this example of a really, really, really pretty one in order to take a picture of that really shambolic one, like, two feet down the road from it. You know, I was like, what kind of bad mindedness is this? Honestly, you you mm -hmm. had to have an agenda to do this. We're not even talking about going into a slum. We're talking about, as I said, some of these things would have been like across the road from each other. And I was I was just in awe. And I, I was I was incandescent. I was so annoyed. I was so angry. I was like, what do I do? Who do I call? Who do I email? You know? And then, as I said, in about 24 hours, it was gone. Like it had never existed. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody, somebody with big enough clout said, yeah, you guys are on drugs and you need to sort your lives out real fast. <laughs> um, I mean, we've got like coffee house books dedicated to channel house. You know, it's, it's not a thing that anyway. So, so, it, it kind of was fascinating to me because he obviously thought he was going to get clicks far faster with commodified pain and poverty and misery than he was going to get with some really pretty nicely painted, you know, historically significant channel houses. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, you had to make an effort to do this. <laughs> it was just, this was not this was not like oh you know this is the untold story. No, you had to like avoid. <laughs> 
so many good things and so many good areas to pull together what you did. There's a kind of a, almost an evil genius. No, I don't want to say genius, an evil talent to it. And, well, it's um, a pre, and it's, that's a textbook case of a preconceived narrative, right? Where you go, and, and this is a problem in the sciences too, where you mm -hmm. go specifically to find, to cherry pick evidence mm -hmm. that supports your narrative. Exactly. Exactly. So and you'll ignore and now, everything else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And now I wish I had hunted up now, now where this, where this connects to, and I wish I'd hunted up this thing in advance because I need to find it. But the author who was sort of credited with the launch of the, the urban genre and the urban genre being, being the one which is sort of, you know, African Americans in the ghetto struggling to get out, having all these like, you know, gunfights and, and, um, teen pregnancies and, you know, drugs and that, that kind of image, that, that particular kind of, of pain and, and poverty and so forth. So, um, like there was a point where this author wrote, um, a kind of an open letter basically saying, I'm, I'm just, I'm just done writing, you know? Because, you know, at first it was like, yes, you know, I'm happy stories are out there. And then I realized, no, this is the only story they want now. This is the only story mm -hmm. they're willing to publish. And, and that, that, that doesn't make sense. That can't be right because we are more than just this. Yes, this was a story that needed to be told, but we don't need to be having this story as the only story or the one that just gets told over and over again. And I do feel like that as a writer from the Caribbean and as a writer, who is visibly black, where, you know, you write a book and somebody can say, oh, it's not Caribbean enough. That was what was said about Redemption Indigo for one of its rejections. Mm -hmm. um, then you, you know, you are asked to write something or you're asked to do something and you're kind of like looking at who is being, um, being celebrated or being feted. And as I said, I want a wide range of stories. So, when I see the, the book or the, or the story or the essay put forward, which is about, you know, violence in Jamaica or is about, um, disaster in Montserrat or is about, um, poverty in Guyana. I am not saying again, those stories should not be told, but I'm like, where are your other stories, man? You know, these are the only ones that you want from us because those are the ones that are going to get your clicks for you. These are the, these, these are the things that you want to digest from us. So, so as I said, as I began to think of that, I realized how right you were about how this ends. And this is why that gives me the secondary chill, like this wall fantasy thing did, because <laughs> I recognize this particular kind of evil from my own life and, and feel like I'm constantly battling against it, you know, battling for the right to tell happy stories, for goodness sakes battling for the right to, to tell optimistic futures um, as, as if, you know, this is a valid thing. Um, and man, yeah. So, you know, here, here I thought that I already loved the story, but you know, you, we discuss, this is what the podcast does for us. We have these discussions and they're just as fresh for us. We discuss and you mention some, I'm like, Oh, wow. New vision, new nuance. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You, 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 to me, it just goes back to the title. Welcome mm -hmm. to your authentic Indian experience, TM. Mm -hmm. For so much of the story, we think you, you of welcome mm -hmm. to your authentic Indian experience. We think you refers to Pale Crow or White Wolf, yeah. the, the guy buying the VR from Jesse. 
But no, I, I that thought it was Jesse. Or you could you could read it as Jesse, but the thing is, because like we've said, mm-hmm. it's all second person. Jesse mm-hmm. is the second person narrator. Mm-hmm. There's an extent to which you is us, the reader, and then we're judging the authenticity of the frame narrative in that you know it, against what we think is quote unquote authentic, and mm-hmm. and again. And and then I'm sitting there, you know, I because I'd been rolling my eyes along with Jesse or rolling my eyes along with Darian, you know, the, mm-hmm. the squaw fantasy uh, worker, and and being like, oh yeah, I get it. I you know, this jibes with what I think of as authentic based on my mm-hmm. experience in Arizona near this community. Mm-hmm, but I don't mm-hmm. have a right. I I don't. I'm not the right judge of authenticity any more than White Wolf or Pale Crow is any more than the management is of the VR company, which is another uh, arbiter of authenticity. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, so it makes it, it's a great way to to open up that question of you know, do I get to be the arbiter any more than anybody else should? And and at that point, you know, the the character of Jesse comes in from a for a huge uh, um, ambiguity. Now, I'm going to both agree with you and do a a but. No, more of an and. More of an and. So -hmm. you're saying saying who gets to judge what's authentic, who gets to be arbiter. I'm not even thinking about judgment anymore. I'm thinking about feeling, about experience. Literally, Mm -hmm. like, what is the feeling people are trying to get out of it? I think that's what shakes me more. Because, as you say, you do get to the point where you realize, oh, wait a minute, the you is the reader. It really is the reader. It really is kind of pulling me into it and and making it part of me. Because then you start questioning why you felt virtuous at certain points when you're reading the story. Mm -hmm. Why you felt like, oh, I'm on the side of the angels for certain parts of the story. Um, I, I suppose it didn't hit me that strongly because I was just too busy, like, as I said, tying it right into the whole West Indian tourist experience. But if you didn't have that kind of experience, if you didn't have that kind of background, it could be more of a um, slightly outsiders having a VR experience of, oh, this is what it's like for these people. And um, and then at the end, you're kind of like, was I, was I in this just for the feeling? Was I in this just to make myself feel like I knew what was going on? Like, like I nodded at the right bits and, and followed the right mm-hmm. bits and yeah. So oh my god. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No. So awards. it's again all the awards. <laughs> all the awards. I I think that's that's pretty much the perfect. Like there's just so much ambiguity that you you don't just interrogate the different perspectives on the characters. You you interrogate your own reactions yes. to what yes. you've just read and and as the best sf does when you get that final reveal it's mm-hmm. not just a cheap oh this might also be another layer of vr reveal it makes you re-interrogate your own reading of everything you just read before mm-hmm. and then you have to read it again and read it again oh mm-hmm. okay this That's this is really SF short stories do yeah this is giving me so much satisfaction on a craft level See, this is this is the amazing thing about stories like this. As a reader, it can make me uncomfortable. It can make me shiver with some of the recognized, you know, traumas and so on, the the shared traumas and what have you. But as a writer, I look at this and I'm like, oh wow, look at how much work she's getting 
done with just such a little bit. This is so awesome. You know, so man, just, just a big ball of contrasting emotions here. <laughs> so I got, I got to say, Rebecca Roanhorse, thank you for writing this story. Because as an author, it's just an amazing thing to see something like this. And also, thank you for writing it because this is a West Indian. It's, well, yeah, I get this. I get it. And, um, yeah. Whew. Ooh. Okay, yeah. So that's the reaction we have to the really good story. <laughs> so we both go... Oh, okay. There's a lot there. <laughs> Five thousand eight hundred yep. words, and we probably talked for at least at least ten seconds for every single one of those words. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, so okay. So, I think that that's a good place to end our discussion of the Hugo Award-winning, Nebula Award-winning, Sturger Award, Sturgeon Award-winning. Uh, Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience by Rebecca Rowanhorse. I understand from her bio that she will have a novel out in 2000, perhaps 19, early 2019. And let me just scroll up to make sure I saw something about it. So anyway, keep an eye out for a novel from this author. I think it will be absolutely worth everyone's while. I think I will be both um, excited and terrified to read it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this will be fascinating. Which is the best so I hope experience. This is, <laughs> I, oh. I hope this is one of those authors that we'll still be talking about 20 years from now. This this is the kind of story that, that can base that kind of career. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So let's see. So do we have any idea what we're doing for our next episode? No, we don't. We've got a bunch <laughs> of candidates, but we're still winging it. Mm-hmm. So for uh, everybody who's coming with us on this podcast, on this journey, we will be back in about a month and we will be talking about something else. Something else. We don't know yet. <laughs> but it'll be cool. But it will be great. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, let's see. Once again, this is SF Crossing the Gulf. <laughs>